Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Carla Nappi, and I'm here for New Books in History. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I just got off the Skype phone with Lisa Gittleman to talk about her really fantastic and very inspiring new book, Paper Knowledge, Toward a Media History of Documents. This was published with Duke University Press in 2014. I really loved this book, and one of the many reasons I loved it is that it's so rich and so full of ways of rethinking not just concepts, but also practices and materials that we typically, as readers or practicers of history, kind of take for granted. So a Xerox copy, a PDF document, a TypeScript, etc. We tend not to really think about these sorts of documents as historical objects that emerge at very particular places and times and do a very particular kind of work and are frankly really, really important for the history that we write and also for the history of media and the history of documents. Gittleman takes these otherwise kind of ephemeral sort of uh, gray area kinds of documents that we tend not to prioritize in our histories and really makes them the stars of the story. So in a series of four body chapters that each look at a particular case study starting in the late 19th century and ending in the 20th century, Gittleman sequentially opens up his... uh, really a history of documents, but at the same time, histories of labor practices, histories of ways of rethinking authorship, ways of rethinking what a document is, what it could be, and its relationship or not to paper materiality. So it's a really, really fascinating book. Um, I think it's really important and will be really inspiring to anybody interested, not just in media studies, but also in science studies, in history, and in histories of materiality as well and histories of labor. It was a super fun time talking with her about it, and it was also just a really inspiring experience to work through the book. So I hope you have a chance to pick up the book, to work through it, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I absolutely did. I'm here today to talk with Lisa Gittleman about her new book, Paper Knowledge, Toward a Media History of Documents. Welcome to New Books in History, Lisa, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today and for navigating a pretty large time difference. So welcome, and thank you. Thanks, Carla. Of course. So, Lisa, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to media studies and its intersection with history? Um, Sure. Uh, I come out of a a literature background, actually, but I was in graduate school at a moment when um, science studies was just kind of exploding. Um, And uh, after grad school, I got a job working um, with a team of scholars publishing the papers of Thomas Edison. Seemed like a kind of natural move from science to technology. And then I was able to see a large archive of documents and to kind of get a documentary sensibility um, or to kind of go to graduate school again, I guess. 
us um, uh, doing that work. Um, and uh, because of Edison's interests, really, it made me into a media historian. And so I made the transition to media studies um, while sort of uh, uh, continuing to be sort of encumbered by all the uh, other earlier interests that I had had. That's great. So the book that we're talking about today is firmly um, in the field of media studies. And what it does is it explores a media history of documents beginning in the late 19th century and extending well into the contemporary world and in moments even into the future. And it focuses on the U.S. context. Now, in addition to this, the book also does all kinds of other really, really, at least from my perspective, very interesting kinds of work. It's also a kind of historical account of moments of reproduction, of labor, of the emergence of a kind of documentary self, and of, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, later on in our conversation, the figure of the amateur in its different historical contexts. So how did you come to this topic in particular? Can you situate your not only your work on this book, but also your decision to write a book and a book-length object about this topic within the larger recent trajectory of your research? Oh, sure. I, uh, my previous book, uh, which was called Always Already New, um, is, is a kind of, uh, it's a, about media history, about doing media history. And uh, one of the things that ended up happening in that book was a lot of attention to records and documents, um, kind of cutely so, because the records in question were phonograph records. It's a book about early recorded sound and then also about the early internet. Um, so having gotten to a point where I was thinking about records and documents, I kind of just wanted to push a little bit further in that direction. Um, and at the same time, I've really always kind of been interested in uh, what I guess I could glibly call um, old media when they were new. Um, so uh, I found myself working for a while on an article about like the first telegram. Um, how could you think about the kind of documentary form associated with telegraphy um, when telegraphy was new? How did experience, have people experience that form of communication um, and that kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, inscriptive form. Um, and then I, you know, wrote another article on, you know, sort of typescripts when they were new. Um, and I realized that this was a kind of a vein that I could pursue um, and that it might be more challenging than to go into hunks of hardware, um, the t- telegraph or the typewriter, um, to think more generally about documents as having had um, a, a modern history. Thank you. Now, the book, um, just from as early as the preface, it opens by introducing us to a kind of document that we might not think about usually in the context of media history, and that's a death certificate. It opens with death certificates. Um, As the book says at the very beginning, one doesn't so much read a death certificate, it would seem, as perform calisthenics on one. And so you set us up from the very beginning, or rather the book sets us up from the very beginning by positing a distinction between, on the one hand reading and then on the other hand using kinds of documentary forms and this kind of distinction is actually going to proceed um, to resurface throughout the rest of the chapters. Now after this the book introduces the idea of a scriptural economy and this is after Deserteau that's defined um, in the book and I'm quoting you here as that totality of writers, writings, and writing techniques that began to expand so precipitously in the 19th century. Now the book is going to then go on to address specific moments in this um, expansion and emergence of a scriptural economy. And it's going to do this, and I'll just set this up for listeners so that they know where we're going next. It's going to do this by looking at four episodes or four moments from a larger media history that each focuses on a different medium for the production and reproduction of documents. 
Now, as we move into the into the kind of body of the book itself, then we move into an introduction that introduces several of the key themes and sort of ideas and contexts that are going to um, recur throughout the chapters of the book. One of the things that you talk about early on, and this is um, probably as good a place as any to begin is the idea of documenting as an epistemic practice. But it's docu- but documenting is an epistemic practice here that's characterized by what you call a no-show function. And for listeners, that's K-N-O-W, um, no-show function. So can you start us off um, by talking about that? What does it mean to characterize documenting um, in terms of a no-show function? And how is that um, central to what you're arguing in this part of the book? Um, sure. It's. Um, I was trying to uh, think of some way to uh, to describe or to define what is a hugely capacious um, genre, the document, um, about which a lot of ink has been uh, spilled for sure. But I suppose what was most uh, important uh, for me to gesture toward was a kind of epistemic sensibility. In other words, there are lots of different ways of knowing things. Um, and one of the, uh, there's just a lot of great work in now uh, in historical epistemologies, right? So how um, uh, different ways of knowing have developed over time, how ways of knowing are culturally as well as historically contingent. Um, but but I, the upshot is there are lots of ways to know things. There's the a priori, there, you know, there are all kinds of ways. If we're going to focus on one that has to do with the document, I think the idea of showing, right, the evidence of mobilizing, um, Latour would say, um, is the kind of uh, a nexus of concerns um, uh, that define a way of knowing proper to documentary practice and to documents as objects. Um, so that's how I came up with the with the no-show function. Great. Thank you. Now, as we move into the chapters, we're going to look at some case studies that collectively help to accomplish some of the major goals of the book as you lay them out early on in this introduction. One of the major goals of the book, as you stated here, is to give a more detailed account of documents in the past to understand and to inform rather how we understand documents in the future. But another goal, as you stated early in the book, is to understand documents so that they help us rethink the categories that have tended to define the history of communication. One of these categories that has for a very long time defined the history of communication is the category of print culture. So could you talk a little bit about that? How is um, the case studies or the the set of case studies you're working on here, this project on documents um, and media culture, meant to help us understand the idea of print culture or to really maybe take apart the notion of print culture um, in a particular way? Um, sure. Uh, that's a, it's a great question. It's a sort of complicated, um, answer, but let me give it a, uh, give it a whirl. Um, I think that, you know, for one thing, certainly under the pressure of, uh, digital media today, um, in both popular and scholarly discourse, it's become a kind of, become a kind of commonplace, um, to think of print as one big old entity. It's a thing or a process or a technology. Um, it, it's a whole, um, and, and we, and we contrast it with the electronic or the digital. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of, er- there are a lot of errors in that. Um, among other things, you know, if we, if we take print to be something simple, we end up with a pretty simple experience of the digital as well. Um, so I wanted to just go back and try and open up that category and, and indeed to, to ask people to sort of stop thinking of it as a, as a closed um, category. Um, uh, and so that, that's sort of one thing 
going on here. Um, uh, and uh, it, it cuts against, at least in the sort of scholarly literature on the history of communication, it, it, it tries to cut against the sort of idea that there's this parade of forms, right? The oral, the literate, the print, you know, and so forth and so on. Um, each of those ends up being a too large category and, and the whole uh, sort of setup of a parade, if you like, um, is a misperception in some sense, or at least leads us to a lot of misunderstandings, I think, about the way um, media history uh, has happened and continues to happen um, uh, in our in our experience. Um, so that, that's the kind of big picture um, argument around um, print culture. But then kind of more specifically, um, if we think about uh, uh, the way we the way we do, you know, grab this category of print out of the air so often to contrast it to um, the electronic, um, it, it's sort of as if we have this sort of cartoon bubble over our heads with a little p- picture of Gutenberg's printing press in it, um, and, and that's just an absurdity because nothing printed today. If I look around, even my my whole apartment here, nothing printed today is printed on a letterpress printing press, um, and yet Gutenberg still remains our our touchstone. Um, uh, so you know, just to think think about the actual technologies that have been used to produce the paper that lie around us, um, whether as scholars or as citizens, um, I think is a kind of important endeavor. If we're going to end up with an equally rich sense um, of how digital uh, textuality and digital forms um, are, you know, uh, are inhabiting the world with us uh, as well. Great. Thank you. And I think this is um, this constellation of ideas that you just brought up relating to paper as a medium, the importance of taking apart the notion of print culture, which we so often use in not just media histories, but in lots of different histories, um, is I think these are just a couple of the major, major reasons why this book is so important, I think, um, for historians to read, as well as for people who self-identify as media studies, because it's so much about the material and the media that we work with and often take for granted. Now, the book begins, speaking of history, the book begins in the late 19th century, and it starts around 1870. What was, for listeners who may not know anything about, um, you know, why you would begin in the late 19th century, can you say a little bit about what was important about that moment of the late 19th century um, in terms of the history of and with documents? Why start there, um, basically, in terms of telling this history? Um, well, there's two answers for that. One has to do with the technology of printing, um, and the other has to do with the kind of maturation of uh, the kind of modern corporation and modern institutions. Um, so the second half of the 19th century, sort of famously in, in kind of paradigmatic American business history, is a moment called the managerial revolution. Um, so it's really a moment when the long history of the family firm um, is a uh, uh, exceeded, if you like, by um, larger commercial interests and eventually the kind of modern, modern corporation, which, you know, would become the multinational. Um, so it's a, it's a moment of modernization um, that is, describes a, a sort of corp, modern corporate entity, um, a managerial ethos, ethos of bureaucracy, uh, memos, um, uh, and a whole set of social institutions, um, uh, gender roles, uh, labor uh, formations, as well as technologies of reproduction um, that come with it. Um, Now, in terms of um, printing and the kind of work done to produce documents, books, anything, um, uh, the end of the 19th century is a moment when, for the first time, letterpress printers um, were uh, joined, if you like, by other cohorts uh, able, for the first time, to produce things that looked like print. Um, Think of typewriters, for one, if you're 
going to think about composition, actually producing literature um, or uh, letters. Um, uh, but uh, beyond that, uh, a host of other technologies um, uh, made it possible for non-letterpress printers um, to print things. Um, first, there were diminutive printing presses um, so that other people could be printers. Um, but additionally, uh, Pretty soon there were a bunch of uh, other technologies. Uh, I think mimeograph is probably one of the first, but there were also all kinds of stenciling devices, um, uh, as well as a kind of long history of actual letter copy presses, which um, were devices that helped businessmen basically keep uh, copies of their correspondence. Um, so the end of the 19th century, um, you can see I'm, I'm sort of hooking up this technology uh, development with the managerial uh, development. It's a kind of important place to go to, I think, start this story. Um, you know, admitting that it's uh, arbitrary as any as any beginning. Um, there are probably a lot of different ways to start too, and and documents are interesting because they have ancient histories. It's not like something like the printing press, which is a modern form, if you like. The document goes as far back as we can ever find human history. I think. Thank you, and this actually really beautifully brings us into the first chapter: a short history of blank, um, which is, I mean, the chapter titles themselves in this book are fantastic. And this is one of my favorites. It's a short history of basically that space visually um, where you would um, on any number of different kinds of forms fill in the blank. And that's very much at the conceptual heart of the chapter. Chapter one brings us into the 1870s at the beginning of the story and considers the work of commercial or job printers. Job printing accounted for, as you tell us in this chapter, about a third of the printing trades in this period. They were super important, but they're often left out of our histories of um, documents of printing in this period. So can you talk a little bit about job printers? Um, who were they? And and um, what do we need to know about like, sort of what job printers were, who they were, in order to understand um, how to proceed and talk and really understand the other arguments you're making in this chapter? So basically, who are these job printers and what do we need to know about them to get started? Okay, well, so job printing is just the uh, you know a term used uh, in the day for commercial printing or contract printing, um, and uh, it, it was always uh, sort of part of the history of letterpress printing. Um, you know, so Gutenberg took a break from publishing Bibles to 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 you know he was jobbed out to he or jobbed himself out to print. Uh, it, uh, indulgences for the church. Um, ben Franklin uh, was a job printer. You know, he published his, um, his own almanac, but he was hired to publish other people's um, stuff. He did a lot of work for the colonial government, um, printing, you know, promissory notes and things like that. Um, so it's, a, it's been a long-lived segment of the printing trades um, that has been uh, radically overlooked um, because of the way that printing history has devoted itself both to the history of books, but also to the histories of authorship, reading, and um, publishing. Um, and uh, the job printed materials like blank forms um, that I dwell on in this first chapter um, are, are kind of importantly not authored, not really for reading um, and not published or even edited in any particular way. They're just printed. They're just print artifacts. Um, so going back and looking at the jobbing press, uh, I just, I found it, it, you know, kind of exciting on a number of different levels. First of all, how would you do it? How would you tell a story of printed blank forms? Um, what is that story? What does that story mean? What, what is it? What, what story is that story a part of um, was a big enough question. Um, and then I was able to just kind of bump into some really interesting characters and, 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 and learn about, you know, a bunch of interesting things about um, 19 or think things about 19th century American life and the so-called managerial revolution that hadn't occurred to me before. 
So there are, so in a moment, I want to get to one of these characters because he's one of my favorite characters in the whole book. He's super interesting. But before then, just to kind of set the stage a little bit for um, listeners, I want to kind of touch on something that you were just talking about. Now, before we get there, you, among the many points um, about the importance of job printing that you're making in this chapter, you say by dividing mental labor, by dividing mental labor, and I want to highlight this because labor and the importance of labor winds up recurring as very much an implicit theme, at least for me, in a lot of these chapters, and becomes an important part of the history of, or of this media history of documents, is a media history of labor. You say blanks make bureaucracy, and you relate this to the emergence of a modern bureaucratic self. And this is also um, something I just want to very momentarily highlight because this emergence of a modern bureaucratic self is very much of a piece with another storyline that threads through the book, at least for me, which is really something we might call the emergence of a kind of documentary self that takes a number of different forms. Now, the 19th century sees a proliferation of these pre-printed fill-in-the-blank forms, and as you mentioned, um, importantly, these documents didn't have readers or create readerships, and they didn't have authors. Now, you just mentioned um, this in your early comments, that these were meant not to be read but to be used, um, but can you say a little bit more about why that's important? Because it really seems like in this um, part of the chapter, this distinction between being read versus being used seems epistemically important in terms of the larger work that you're doing in the book. Well, again, it's a way, I think, to uh, um, uh, to proceed orthogonal to some of the reigning assumptions about uh, print and, and what printed artifacts uh, are doing, uh, in particular that they might, you know, be uh, reservoirs uh, for uh, heritage, that they're sort of instruments for the preservation of knowledge. Um, uh, and uh, similarly, that they might work to uh, draw people together into imagined communities and, and the rest. Um, and if you start to think about the extraordinary profusion of uh, job-printed items, which included so many blank forms, um, you see that there's something else going on. Um, and it's something that has to do with uh, corporate speech uh, more often than not. And, and corporate speech is something that doesn't fit neatly with the categories of the author as um, the author has been uh, sort of romantically described. Um, I think either uh, obviously in literary studies or by eventually by copyright law. Um, so that the forms, you know, just kind of open up a kind of broader prospect to think about um, what uh, print artifacts are for and the arenas in which they operate. And therefore the kind of knowledge economies, if you like, um, in, in which documents are important and function. Thank you. So by the end of this chapter, uh, we meet somebody who is eventually arrested for counterfeiting McDonald's meal tickets. But before we find that out, we meet him instead as the author of one of the um, examples, one of the case studies in this chapter. This is Harpel's Typograph, or Book of Specimens. So can you talk a little bit about this book um, and the kind of importance of this work in the context of the larger um, arguments of the chapter? Sure. Harpel's Typograph is just a wacky, wacky book um, that I first saw at the American Antiquarian Society. Um, it is, as it says, a book of specimens, which means that Harpel, who was a job printer, um, would, uh, uh, he or his underlings, it's difficult to tell exactly the labor that went into this, um, would uh, set up in type a, a, a check or a billhead or a 
trade card or a calendar or a, I mean, think of the zillions of different print uh, forms um, that the job printing office was uh, sort of party to. Um, and he would set them up to, to print off, you know, let's say uh, order blanks um, for a grocery store. Um, but he would also print a copy onto um, a, a sh- large sheet that would be bound eventually into this book, the typograph. Um, so the typograph has lots and lots of these um, hundreds of uh, specimens of different um, job printed forms um, printed onto its pages, right? So it's a book as if sort of fantasized out of the job printing office. Um, so it was one way just to get a handle on the kind of diversity of forms um, that job printing was involved with um, during this crucial period at the end of the 19th century. Um, and it just it was, uh, provided me with um, just a great object to think about um, because, of course, if you're thinking about that order blank form that is reproduced on the pages of the typograph, it's not an order blank because it's the ink that would have gone onto an order blank um, uh, that is uh, imprinted, um, uh, you know, imposed and imprinted uh, onto the sheet of the that is bound into the typograph, right? So really what you're getting is not an order blank. You're getting the kind of labor uh, and ink um, of the job printing house that has been preserved in the pages of this codex. Um, and that it just it was just really a kind of great artifact to, to think with about job printing um, and uh, a host of other things about how job printing fit into um, the kind of circulation of paper, but the circulation of, of value and meaning uh, in the 19th century. And this actually raises one of the more general, um, really interesting things that, at least for me, about the book, is that just as, as you mentioned, these books, including Harple's Typograph or Book of Specimens, and then one of the others that you mentioned in this chapter, you call them really weird, right? Because they're both preserving a kind of ephemerality and then undermining that ephemerality because they're published in book form. Um, but one of the things that you just said... Um, was about the in these kinds of um, blank forms that are preserved in Harpel's book. It's not the form itself. It's the ink and the labor that would have gone into the form. So this naturally, I think, for the reader, um, makes us think of images as, as you're using them in your book, right? Because you're also then reproducing images of these reproductions of these forms. So can you talk a little bit about how you are envisioning and using and choosing images to go into this book as illustrations of and really parts of the argument um, that you're working with? And you can, you know, either um, the image of Harpel or, or, you know, more generally how you are thinking about the kind of work that images are doing in your book. Sure. Yeah, it was fun to try and think about what images to use because I wanted to pick things. Well, I guess it doesn't matter so much what I picked is that I wanted to be able to have captions that would offer a really kind of precise sense of what people were seeing. Um, So for me, maybe the best example is um, later in the book, there's a picture of a Xerox. Um, Well, obviously, it's not a Xerox because it's a halftone in this book that's been published by Duke University Press. Um, but I wanted to say in the caption, look, this is basically a halftone of a Xerox. But more than that, it's a halftone of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. Um, and to point out things in the image that would make people, you know, sort of realize the kind of depth of reproduction um, inherent in what they were seeing. Um, and that was really fun. The, 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 I, I have an illustration of the title page from Harple's typograph, which has uh, – this isn't – this is an exaggeration, but an infinite number of typefaces, all these weird display fonts that Harple used. Um, and the, I wanted to have a caption that said, you know, uh, 
uh, title page to Harpo's typograph and printed it in four colors. And how many places I wanted to make the quiz, but the publisher wouldn't let me. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Now, as we move um, further toward that chapter on Xeroxes, we actually hit a chapter before then that moves us into the 1930s. And this is a chapter that focuses on a very different kind of context than the first chapter. This is the context of really the realm of scholarly communication. Now, this is a field where people are celebrating in the 1930s the power of new media to change the ways that documents are reproduced, and reproduction becomes a really important theme here, and thus, by doing so, to transform scholarship in many different ways. This chapter looks very closely at the work of a Stanford-trained historian who focused on the history of modern Europe, and he was called Robert Binkley. Robert Binkley is well-known in this chapter for authoring something called Methods of Reproducing Research Materials. This is published in 1931 by a company called Edwards Brothers Incorporated, which for listeners who have ever done a dissertation or read a dissertation, um, the, this is a company, the director of which eventually leaves Edward Brothers to form University Microforms International, which is UMI, which is the company that many of us engage with when we are downloading PDFs and um, versions of dissertations online. Okay, but we're not there yet we're in the 1930s with Robert Binkley. So can you talk a little bit about um, what is this report, Methods of Reproducing Research Materials? What is this book? What does it look like? Um, and what do we need to understand about this book um, to then understand the work that you're going to continue to do with it um, later on in this chapter? Uh, yeah, the, the methods, Binkley's methods from 1931 is a little uh, kind of self published, I'd call it, mimeograph booklet. Um, and I think it, it's most important because it leads to a, a sort of revised edition, if you like, um, called the manual um, uh, um, instead of methods, which is basically a manual uh, introducing a huge diversity of uh, media for the reproduction of documents um, with the goal of uh, sort of e e mitigating what was even then called a crisis uh, in scholarly communication. Um, so Binkley was excited that if uh, you could deploy or if you could identify and deploy um, kind of precisely the right uh, media of documentary reproduction, you'd really be able to uh, have a workaround um, for the untenable situation that commercial publishing um, puts uh, the academy in. Um, we know that the academy, you know, because it's more and more specialized, um, you know, you need smaller and smaller print runs. And we're all still up against this already. I mean, university presses are being hammered. And as you can imagine, during the Great Depression, the same sort of situation um, uh, attended. So scholarly publication was in crisis. Um, then as now, and new media were seen as, uh, you know, uh, just a kind of utopian dream. Oh my God, we have a more flexible publishing format. We can do small editions. We can do them quickly. We can um, use a whole kind of nested sense of different media. We can use uh, mimeograph for some things and microfilm for other things. Um, when mimeograph doesn't make sense, maybe we could use ditto. Um, and so there's just a, a whole uh, a range of different technologies that Binkley wanted to study in detail in the manual um, to try and lay out how they might interlock um, into a, a seamless but very rational and productive uh, system of scholarly communication that would really save uh, us from uh, uh, problems that, that continue to haunt uh, uh, the academy and the production of new knowledge today.
Awesome. Thank you. Now, a really important part, at least for me as, you know, one reader, right, a really important part of this chapter is the importance of reproduction, right, reproduction of scholarly materials. So according to Binkley, as you um, put it in this chapter, an original document and its reproduction should be interchangeable to the scholar. This, so this focus on reproduction and its epistemic import seems really important here. Can you talk a little bit about that, the importance of reproduction, its connection to access, and this idea that an original and its reproduction should be interchangeable in this context? Yeah, I think that Binkley is probably a little bit conflict, conflicted on that point. Um, uh, even though he says that the original and the reproduction, you, you know, should be the same. Um, I don't think he always thinks that or thinks that in every situation. Um, or maybe that's my anxiety there as, as somebody who's kind of interested in um, bibliography. Um, but certainly, uh, I think that one of the well, the, so the source of Binkley's so visionary power, one of the sources, is his identification of reproduction and access. Um, that basically, if you can reproduce something uh, and uh, um, ensure that other that people can get to it, um, you know, victory is ours. Um, that that's really what it takes to make new knowledge is to give scholars access to their source material. Um, so I'm, I'm reminded of you know, so the early moments of the World Wide Web when there's a sort of sense in which the web was going to be for uh, putting rare things uh, online so that you wouldn't have to fly around the world to see every rare document that you needed as a historian. Um, and it's very much that sensibility, too, that that, uh, that was um, sort of taking hold uh, in Binkley's uh, mind and that he was a- able to communicate with his uh, fellows on this uh, ACLS and uh, SSRC Joint Committee, um, that, that, look, let's just get some coordination um, around um, the reproduction of sources uh, needed for the production of knowledge. Make sure that scholars can get to see what they need to see um, and, and we'll be better off. And then, you know, uh, plus, 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 let's make sure that the work that scholars produce um, can also be reser- uh, uh, reproduced um, at the right scale um, so that other scholars can build uh, on the shoulders of uh, giants, if you like. And those um, other scholars might be gentlemen and they might be amateurs. Um, and I just, we, you know, we don't need to talk about that distinction in those categories just yet because we'll get to the amateurs um, in a much more focused way toward the end of our discussion. But this is just um, to mention that this figure of the amateur also resurfaces repeatedly throughout the chapters. Now, there's a lot of contemporary relevance to these concerns, as should be obvious to listeners, and as um, you've already alluded to, right? This chapter is framed, among other things, as a step toward a kind of deeper history of the digital humanities. You talk about the importance of microfilm technology, which makes possible some of the scholarly resources many of us use, like early English books online. But the chapter itself is called the TypeScript book. And it emphasizes the importance of the TypeScript document. And in particular, coming back to this larger thread of labor and its importance here, the ways that such documents were marked by feminized secretarial labor in the 1930s. So can you talk a little bit about that, the importance of and the marking of these documents according to um, feminized secretarial labor in this context? Sure. One of the things that I wanted to sort of sit with and think about um, is the uh, TypeScript, um, TypeScript documents, TypeScript books in this case, um, uh, as a kind of um, as harboring, if you like, a sense of being in process, um, uh, 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 harboring um, the 
the residuum, if you like, of a secretarial uh, labor uh, and secretarial labor force. Um, and, and that, you know, that uh, for me just sort of haunts the idea of the TypeScript in general. But in thinking about um, the TypeScript book and, and Binkley's sort of concern, uh, again, that scholarly productions um, would be reproduced um, from uh, TypeScripts. Um, uh, it's just, you know, by mimeograph or by offset even. Um, that, that, that is, uh, in a way, um, uh, Binkley's attempt to think secretarial labor into a kind of uh, still, you know, kind of forgotten uh, in the background in some sense, um, but also, th- but 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 really to give secretarial labor um, the uh, I don't know the the feet, if you like, to haunt uh, um, the the reading that scholars do. Um, I'm not I'm not making a, a very clear case of this, but uh, I mean, I guess for me, one of the um, um, one of the important uh, kind of moments in the chapter was that I realized that typescripts themselves, um, in a sense for uh, uh, readers and, and writers in the 1930s, had some of the qualities that we think of today, um, what we associate today with electronic documents. Um, just that TypeScript documents would have harbored a sense of uh, uh, recentness, right, of flexibility, um, of their kind of office origins, right, their closeness to um, a closeness to the site of composition, um, their flexibility even, their ease of update, their ease of correction, um, as well as the way that TypeScripts uh, by the 1930s were sort of necessarily between the process of uh, the sort of um, the author's brain, if you like, and the publisher's machinery, right? Any manuscript um, was sent to the press, whether to the newspaper or to the offset press or to the uh, publishing commercial publishing houses. Any manuscript went through TypeScript. Um, the way we think of today, any, any you know, idea um, going into print goes through electronic documents. Um, and it was some of that, you know, kind of throughness, um, which, of course, you know, we always forget to say as a secretarial throughness um, of typists um, uh, usually t- retyping um, uh, manuscript um, that you know it's just it's been kind of hard to remember I think and so getting back to that uh, prospect uh, I think was an important part of uh, seeing into Binkley's world. Thank you. Now, as we move into the next chapter, Xerographers of the Mind, we move into the 1960s and we move into an aspect of the scriptural economy that I mentioned at the very beginning um, of our conversation that was designed to keep things secret. And you introduce us here to documents that really leaked beyond um, those elements of the economy that were supposed to keep things secret. And in fact, um, revealed secrets that weren't meant to get out. And there are two fantastic case studies that you um, take us into here. So I'd like to talk briefly about both of them. This chapter not only takes us into the 1960s, but looks specifically at the photocopy, at the Xerox um, as a documentary medium. Photocopy machines became really um, widely used as we go into the 1970s. You call them sites of cultural production and also sites of self-possession. You could keep your own documents in a lot of managerial and um, business contexts in a way that you couldn't before. They become really important in terms of this larger history of modern bureaucracy. 
Now, one of the really marquee examples um, in this chapter is the example of Daniel Ellsberg and what become known as the Pentagon Papers. Ellsberg worked at the Rand Corporation. He secretly copied sections of a document that, or of a actually a, a multi-volume um, set called the History of U.S. Decision-Making Processes, or rather the History of U.S. Decision-Making Process on Vietnam Policy. That was one of the, the uh, titles. He copied these in 1969 and leaked them to the New York Times in 1971. And the story of the Pentagon Papers may be familiar to some listeners. So what was important about this example in terms of the larger argument in this chapter that you're making about photocopy as a medium and the kinds of transformations that photocopy and Xerox documents um, enacted and um, made possible in terms of the documentary self and the scriptural economy? I was trying in this chapter to really, as I did in the earlier chapters, go back in time to get a different view than the one we have from contemporary, our contemporary perspective of documentary forms, um, to just try and figure out, I mean, and it was a devilish kind of methodological problem in this chapter more than any, I think, how to figure out what photocopies meant um, uh, in the, say, around 1970. Um, and the methodological gimmick in this chapter that I came up with was these famous photocopies. Um, so Binkley's manual and Harpel's typograph are obscure, forgotten volumes that I get a lot of mileage out of, um, but they'll probably always be obscure, forgotten volumes, quirky, wacky, whatever. The Pentagon Papers, um, lots of people know about. Uh, the Pentagon Papers were important. Um, and of course, the Pentagon Papers uh, case, um, the New York Times, US v. New York, uh, New York Times, is hugely important in um, American jurisprudence. Um, so it, it was a fun example to work with. Um, but it was really a device to get back and think about, well, gee, what can I find out about the Xeroxing of the Pentagon Papers that have to do with those Xeroxes as Xeroxes. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was trying to get back and, and really, you know, operate with Ellsberg, if you like, and his his uh, co-conspirators um, as they copied the things to figure out what they were doing. Um, and, you know, it could sort of come up with several ideas that, in a sense, one of the things that, that Xeroxing helped people do at the beginning was edit. Because um, you could edit out uh, things you didn't want, um, like uh, where the Pentagon Papers said, top secret. You could just Xerox those off. Um, you could, uh, um, another sort of function of Xeroxing uh, at the moment was, um, this is going to sound a little bit ridiculous, but sort of mimetic. There seems to be ways in which photocopying became a kind of uh, addiction, um, people said at the time. Um, and, and this seems certainly true of Ellsberg, who, who, for whom I should, should say have enormous amounts of respect. Um, there were times that he couldn't keep himself from Xeroxing and then re-Xeroxing. Um, and, and indeed, Xeroxes of Xeroxes, I think, are the kind of, if I can be an the kind of killer application that the Xerox Corporation um, had no inkling of when it started to market photocopiers. Um, Xeroxes of Xeroxes are, you, you know, kind of, uh, they're still the air we breathe in some respects. Um, and, and Ellsberg uh, offers a good example of this. And I think additionally, there are ways in which Xeroxes, as you said, become instruments of self-possession um, in ways that earlier uh, documentary reproduction techniques could not have, simply because they uh, uh, are just sort of more laborious um, to produce. Um, but once every office worker can take a few extra copies home of the particularly incriminating memo um, to use as grist later on against her boss, um, you know, things start to seem uh, a lot 
a lot different. Um, so that, that was the that was the idea here is to try and think about photocopies as photocopies uh, in a sense. Because really, I mean, today we call things Xeroxes or photocopies all the time, um, but our experience of them is much, much different. A lot has changed. Um, so I really, this was sort of archaeology, uh, a little bit of an expedition to the past. Thank you. Now, one of the points that you're making here, in addition to also um, to kind of follow the labor thread through this chapter as well, bringing out the importance of collaborative labor. So it wasn't just um, Ellsberg, but some of his collaborators were actually his children, right, who were helping him make the copies. Um, But also you talk about the importance of this in terms of photocopying, both helping both creating and also helping people transcend a kind of inside-outside boundary. So the relationship between the Xerox as a medium and this idea of boundaries and insides and outsides. Can you talk a little bit about um, that aspect of the Ellsberg example and sort of how you're relating photocopying to insides and outsides? Um, Sure. It it just, uh, the... uh Previous chapters look at kind of across institutions or institutionalized realms. Um, and this chapter seems kind of importantly to be about the way that documents transgress. Um, it's one of the sort of functions that documentary reproduction seems to uh, enable. And um, I'm thinking of the Pentagon Papers, obviously, as a leak. Um, but, you, but you could think as well of WikiLeaks and other modern forms. Um, that, that somehow, you know, the power of documentary reproduction in some sense is to, is to get outside um, and to sort of speak in different contexts, even if with the same voice, um, so that the voice looks a little bit uh, absurd. Um, so uh, this is related to parody, but obviously it's, it's, it's sort of more importantly politic political critique um, when the New York Times publishes the Pentagon's um, sort of speech as the Pentagon's speech, um, but isn't the Pentagon. Um, so that happens in this chapter, and then there are a couple of other examples um, that, that sort of point in similar directions. Um, there's a folklorist at Berkeley named Alan Dundas who worked on this weird sort of subgenre called photocopy lore, um, which are those sort of snarky cartoons that you see uh, sort of pinned up in the Xerox room uh, at your university, possibly, or if you work in a, a cubicle farm uh, over by the water cooler. Um, and he kind of made a career of studying these um, cartoons and joke quizzes. We see them on email now, too, this kind of literature. Um, but the, uh, the the point I'm making is that these are, these are sort of spoofs on the document genre um, that actually infiltrate. They're not leaks like the Pentagon Papers, where they leak out of institutional context, they're, they're infiltrations. They, they leak back in um, to mock um, or to critique um, the kind of corporate uh, culture, the corporate speech um, to which they're directed. Yeah, that moment um, in that chapter was hilarious. For listeners, this is a, a book um, that's talked about in this chapter called Urban Folklore from the Paperwork Empire. And I highly recommend um, looking at this chapter and to look at some of the reproductions from that and the discussion of that. I had no idea um, before reading this that a book like that even existed. And it's just completely fantastic. So the chapter also looks at another example that I won't um, ask you to talk too much about purely in the interest of time. But this is an example that's also equally fascinating. This is John Lyons and his commentary on the sixth edition Unix operating system, which is, um, as you call it, the most photocopied document in computer science. I mention this because one of the really important things that the book's analysis of this particular um, document in computer science does is it talks about and helps us think about the fluidity of documentation, the fluidity of what it meant to be a document, to produce a document, um, to uh, create and circulate a document. And this is one of the take-home points, at least 
least for me of this chapter, is that Xeroxing um, and this kind of documentation didn't just reproduce documents, it didn't just make copies, it also identified and created them. So this is about the creation of an idea of what a document is at the same time that it's about reproduction. And that's, I think, really important. This really nicely, I think, I mentioned this because it nicely takes us into also a kind of interplay between um, different kinds of documents, paper and the digital, that really forms uh, the heart or one of the parts of the heart of the next chapter, near print and beyond paper, knowing by PDF. This is a chapter that focuses on the portable document format or PDF file. This is a file format that probably um, all or most of our listeners are familiar with and use on a daily basis, right, or almost daily basis. It's a file format created by Adobe Systems in 1991. And the chapter takes us into the early history of the creation of this file format, but also talks about or uses it to talk about and rethink um, in many ways what a document is and how thinking about digital documentation kind of takes us beyond paper and into really um, another transformation and what it means to not just create documents, think about documents, but think about what the document itself is. Now, um, you, you bring us into this account of this really, I think, fascinating account of PDF documentation by asking a couple of questions, right? At least a couple of questions. What assumptions about documents have been built into the PDF format? How does the format help define or redefine what a document is? And along the way, you make up what I take to be a really important point about the PDF as a document format. You situate this historically within the emergence of desktop publishing and what you call what you see is what you get technology. So can you talk about that? The idea of what you see is what you get technology, the intersection between a document and uh, sort of an image of a document. And why is this important to the work that you're using your study of PDF documents to do in this chapter? Really, really complicated question, and I'm not sure I can do it justice. Oh, um, you're inspired, but <laughs> um, uh, I'm I'm kind of inspired here by uh, people. It just turns out there's this awful lot of history of computing that hasn't been written yet. Um, there's some really interesting work coming from a bibliographical direction uh, or with a bibliographical sensibility that asks us to be way more precise than I think we have uh, been heretofore uh, linguistically about even how to describe things um, about uh, computer technology and about even the interface. Um, so one of the things I was trying to think about here was just, you know, kind of what kind of history should we have for the PDF file? Um, and one part of that answer is a history of the interface. Um, and in particular, the the kind of inspired what you see is what you get uh, to, um, sort of feature, if you like, um, that we now experience um, through our use of PDF files, right? That they're stable across um, programs and uh, platforms and printers, uh, right? That they have a kind of um, fixity, to use a word that um, is often uh, used in relation to letterpress printing. Um, so just, I, I wanted to try and find a history for that, um, that sense of fixity um, that makes PDFs both so useful and also in some sense backward looking, right? Looking backward toward print uh, technologies like letterpress 
press, um, uh, but also makes them so available um, for the no-show function incumbent in the document and documentary forms. Um, so that was that was the the goal here, and there are lots of different. Uh, I, I you know there's a little bit of a sort of wandering into different pockets of history um, that allow that narrative to kind of uh, come together uh, in, in the end in this chapter. Um, but it was a it was a really um, fun chapter to think about, and it was a chapter that I sort of challenged myself not to write as merely a kind of corporate account um, of where Adobe came up with uh, this, you know, highly influential and, and obviously very profitable um, suite of applications uh, and related um, formats. Great, thank you. Now, one of the points that you make in this chapter echoes something that's come up previously in our conversation and something that comes up um, in other chapters. And so I want to take that as an opportunity, or I want to take this um, evocation of it as an opportunity to talk about it a little bit. And that's the idea of corporate speech. Now, you talk about the development of the PDF as coming out of an interest in or an interest from corporate speech. So can you talk a little bit about that, both in the context, perhaps, of the PDF specifically, um, and maybe more broadly, the idea of corporate speech as it animates um, the work that the book is doing? Sure. And I think, you know, this is really something, I mean, if you uh, think about how um, the humanities so traditionally studied textual forms, and there's a great deal of interest today in the history of the book, say, but obviously it's long, long, long tradition, kind of romantic tradition of the study of literary uh, textuality. Um, we really have not done enough with vernacular forms, um, and it seems to be this kind of urgent need um, to study uh, corporate speech and cor- vernacular forms that, that attend uh, the kind of modern and contemporary um, post managerial revolution, uh, if you like. Um, uh, my colleague, uh, John Guillory, has a lovely uh, essay about the memo. Um, but we, we need more of that. And, and I think that this book is sort of, I, I convinced myself in writing it, if you like, that we need more attention to that. Um, and the corporate speech is kind of important to figure out that it's under understudied, even though ubiquitous and obviously quite uh, important to the lives we lead. Um, We're sort of trapped uh, by its assumptions, I think. And the PDF is just a kind of great uh, touchstone to think about corporate speech with, because among other things, it just so obviously lends itself to a kind of hierarchy of control, since uh, a PDF reader is just a reader, um, like a like an early web browser, right? You just look at the document with it. Um, it you need to have some sort of specialized version, a souped up uh, version um, to produce PDFs or to do things with them, to edit them. Um, more and more people know this now, but it, it, you know, the kind of experience of being somewhere in the organizational hierarchy is one that you can uh, see, really, if you think about the complexity of this format um, and the kind of variations in agency, if you like, uh, allowed by its um, various uh, kind of features. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the territory I'm looking at um, with regard to corporate speech here. And it was a, more a reminder than anything else that the earlier chapters had kind of had to go there too, whether the job printing or the uh, Xeroxing or the mimeograph, that, that, that in a sense these were... Uh, uh, Reproduction tech, documentary reproduction techniques um, that uh, that corporations necessarily avail themselves of. I think a lot of the earlier work done on bureaucracy has been about state bureaucracy, um, but our uh, U.S. context and kind of the American business history 
narrative or paradigm, I think makes available to, to scholars um, here a much more sort of diverse sense of what bureaucracy entails. And there's now, I think there's more and more good work on NGOs, corporations, um, and other kind of corporate uh, contexts. So, so this is a kind of, I don't know, a valentine in that direction, if you like. Thank you. So not only is it um, part of this larger history of, or sort of historical encounter with corporate speech, but also just to mention for listeners um, who are particularly interested in these aspects of the story, um, you already mentioned the idea of the PDF as sort of um, materializing within itself an implicit labor hierarchy, at least in its um, the early history of its use. So this is part of this continuing sort of echo of labor history that uh, moves through the chapters. You also talk about the importance of the PDF here in terms of its design to insulate reading from authoring. And so I want to just signal that this is one of many moments in the book where authorship or the kind of prop, the assumptions that we might have in looking at a media history of documents that we're also looking at a certain kind of history of authorship is really um, very, very usefully problematized here. And this is one of many places in the book where I think you're taking the idea of the connection between documents and authors and really turning it uh, on its head in a way that I think is, is really important for any of us who think about history of and with documents and who use documents. So I want to just mention that this is really important, I think, also for listeners who are interested in authorship and ways of thinking more creatively about that in these histories. Yeah, th- thanks, Carl. Thanks for mentioning that. I just wanted to, to I- interrupt and, and say I'm glad that I'm glad that you made that point, made it so cogently. Um, that the in thinking about the PDF, it did become essential to think about office labor in the 1990s, um, which you know I was in office labor in the 1990s, as many I think listeners probably will have been, and uh, so it was a really kind of interesting trip back in time to see some things about labor in that period. So as we move into the afterword, um, one of the things I really love about the book, and there are many things that I love about the book, and this should um, be clear already if it's, if it's not um, explicitly, I'll just say it right now. I love many things about the book. But one of those things is that the author, the afterword doesn't just um, take us through um, already well-trodden paths in the book. The, the afterword doesn't just conclude by saying things that you've already said. The, the afterword does a really important kind of work by picking out a theme that's been um, coming up in different ways in all of the chapters and focusing in on it as a way to bring us forward from, from the study into new territory. And this is the idea of amateurs and amateurship. So the afterword responds to um, what you call a persistent question that you mentioned in countering in the course of your research, are you going to write about zines, right? So the chapter looks, kind of does that in a way that doesn't um, give us a history of zines, but rather um, touches on a piece of that history by bringing us into an exploration of not necessarily the history of amateurs and amateurdom, but a really thoughtful account of what it might mean to look at that history and to kind of problematize a kind of trans-historical account of amateurs as actors and as objects and amateurdom as a kind of category. So the chapter is put another way, really emphatically moving us away from anachronistically adopting a kind of trans-historical category of amateurs or amateurdom. You say here, amateurs of one era are not amateurs of another. 
So what I want to ask you to talk a little bit about in the context of this afterward is this idea of the amateur in history. Um, what, in, in what way are you using the figure of the amateur um, in this afterward as a historical object? And what's important for us to understand about the figure of an amateur historically as it animates your work, and especially in this part of the book? Um, sure. This is. Um, uh, I, I think this afterward was written in a sense against a kind of utopian um, uh, groundswell, if you like, uh, of enthusiasm for every a new um, media of documentary reprodu- medium of documentary reproduction as kind of opening the door to a, a larger and larger constituencies as a sort of empowering the mass. Um, you know, now we can all Xerox zines. Now we can all mimeograph. Um, there's certainly that element um, to the story, but I wanted to think long and hard about whether there is that arc, whether we can generalize that way. Um, and it got me involved in thinking about um, a sort of sequence of amateur populations and productions um, uh, as a way to to get back at that. I, I actually ended up going back to Oscar Harpel's day um, to an initial group of amateur printers um, to think, you know, okay, what were the amateur printers of, you know, say the 1870s and 80s like? How were they amateur? In what, in what, what does it mean to say they were amateurs? Um, and then, you know, sort of move forward in time to think about other groups of amateurs and, and ask, well, wait, are they amateurs in the same way? Um, uh, you know, uh, for one thing, I think that the amateur printers of Oscar Herpel's day weren't, weren't amateur in the sense that they were not professional. Um, I think that they were amateur in the sense uh, that these were mostly young people, mostly young boys, is that they were uh, middle class. Um, in other words, they weren't sent out to labor. Um, they were able to stay home and publish their amateur newspapers. Um, and I think things just look a lot different if you move forward in time. Um, and this is a book that does make a series of chronological jumps, so I do it again here, um, just because it's a nice contrastive optic, if you like. Um, and, and if you move up, you know, even into the present day, I think people who are amateur producers of zines or of whatever, uh, all the amateur cultural production we see online, um, they are amateurs in a very different way um, than other classes of amateurs historically. Um, So the chapter is just a kind of initial meditation on what a history of amateurdom would look like um, and and what it might entail. How, you know, how broad a canvas do you really need to have in order to tell a a thoroughgoing um, story of what an amateur is at any particular historical moment? So Lisa, I've already taken up a lot of your time, um, so I think it's a nice moment to um, bring us to a close. Um, But I just wanted to, first of all, thank you for this. It's an extraordinarily rich book. There's a ton of material um, we didn't even remotely have a chance to talk about. It's it's really, really rich. I hope it's already clear to listeners that this is uh, making several really important contributions, not just to media studies, but also to history um, and also to science studies in a way and to how we think about and also practice our work as historians and scholars who engage in any way with documents and documentary history. So there's a lot we had a chance to talk about, but there's, of course, a lot um, that we left out. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Well, I guess there's just one thing. Um, we kind of skipped over the the lion's commentary and the kind of argument that I try and make about uh, the relatedness of 
the origins of di digital documents and their experience with Xeroxes. Um, and uh, the reason I wanted to just point that very brief, that, that moment briefly is not to go into and explain it and all the rest, but, but rather to say that this is a book, and even in my comments today, I've sort of mobilized some quite anachronistic uh, comparisons um, between occurrences in the past and contemporary digital forms. Um, it's a book that does that, but it tries to do that extremely responsibly. Um, so I just wanted to to make sure that I didn't get, you know, sort of sloppy in my hand waving and do too much of that or be off putting in that way. Um, but, but really, Carla, I want to thank you for your very generous um, reading of the book and, and these generous questions. Oh, of course. No, it's my pleasure. And now that we've, um, now that you've finished the book and it's out and congratulations on that, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you and what are you working on now? Uh, well, uh, I don't, uh, you know, one of the great, uh, uh, things about finishing a big project is that, uh, you, I, have, I could do anything. Um, but, uh, I'm starting on something small to begin with, I think, um, and just sort of riffing on a particular kind of document or a sort of kind of circulation, I think. I'm looking right now at seed catalogs, um, uh, which, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, historicize seed catalogs. I'm interested in the mail order biz, um, but I'm also interested, it's a historical epistemology project in that I'm kind of looking to at the, um, the history of the systematizing of horticulture. Um, botany, of course, is, uh, you know, kind of a royal science, and there's a long and well-told story of how botany was systematized, uh, which um, Sweden is interestingly um, the center point. Um, but uh, horticulture is different because horticulture involves amateurs, again, um, gardeners everywhere, and horticulture involves what is called the trade, right? It has to do with what's for sale. Um, so those are the sort of two animating interests, the circulation of seeds, through the mail and the kind of knowledge uh, that accrues as horticulture rather than as botany. That's that's all I got so far. Okay, I love that. I can't wait to read it. And best of luck with that project. Really, that's super fascinating too. You got me. You you had me at seed catalogs. Uh, so, Lisa, thank you again. It's really been a pleasure. And best of luck with the new project. Thanks, Carla. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. You've been listening to new books in history. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.